0: I'm Mark Hennick. This is So-Called Normal. Hey folks, welcome to So-Called Normal. I'm Mark Hennick. Today on the show we have Anna mailer pepperney uh, she's the author of the book uh, hello I want to die please fix me I love the the title of that it, it grabbed me immediately so I knew I had to have her on the show and uh, I know you're not going to be disappointed by the conversation as well um, I do want to give you a heads up I mean as you might guess by the title of the the book we talk a lot about suicide we spend a lot of time talking about illness about uh, we talk a bit about her attempts and her hospitalizations and we have so much in common so you're gonna hear me talk a lot more than I normally do on these things because I felt like I had so much in common with Anna, but uh, go out and, and buy her book. I'll tell you that now. I'm going to tell you that after the interview as well. Uh, I think you're really going to be interested in, in this one. Uh, so here's my conversation with Anna Mailer Peppermint.
1: I usually introduce myself as a reporter. Um, I work for Reuters in Toronto, but now I can add book author, I guess. Yes. It still seems strange to, <laughs> to include that as part of my biography. Why? Wow,
0: you've been writing for years.
1: I've been writing for all my uh, professional life, yeah. Um, but this is my first book. This is right. my first attempt at something of this scope. And it still feels foreign a little bit.
0: And you have quite an extensive list of references in the back. As I scan through <laughs> the the, uh, the weight of the book, I had <laughs> appendix envy, I think, something oh, I've never really? experienced before. No, because it, it, it it's so thoroughly researched and you've talked to so many people, you're background as a reporter, I think, really came through.
1: It really helps me here. Um, I felt like this is something that in order to do it justice, I really needed to dig in and sort of, I mean, I wanted to include my own story. So the thought that was an important sort of framing mechanism. But I wanted to be able to get beyond my own story and sort of research what we know and what we don't know and what the limitations are.
0: So I'm interested in in that as a a mechanism, first of all, or, or why that's the approach. But before we get there, can you tell me what is your story? What's the story that you set out to tell in this book?
1: Um, so I set out to tell the story of suicide and depression, both my own story as somebody who first tried to kill herself um, almost a decade ago now and when I was 24 years old mm-hmm. um, and has since then over the past uh, almost nine years sort of kept trying to kill myself but also yeah. spent most of the time trying to find... Uh, something I could live with, trying to find sort of a sense of self and mm-hmm. a way to be that was bearable, yeah. and that was intensely difficult. So it's about sort of that journey, but it's also about my attempts to find out what this is, what is depression, what is suicidality, mm-hmm. what do we know about it, what don't we know about it. and Which is we, a
0: lot, it turns out. <laughs> we, we, there's a
1: lot we don't know, Yeah, yeah. yeah. So it sort of chronicles that and sort of looks at specifically just where we fall down. And we fall down a lot when it comes to addressing the illness, caring for people who have the illness, um, getting what tools we know work into the hands and into the brains of people who need it.
0: Yeah. So you're so you're 24 when this starts hitting you. Where are you in your life at that point, you're you're already an award-winning, successful reporter. By that point, <laughs> I, w- I wouldn't
1: call myself award-winning, but I was right. I did I was employed. Yeah. I was working for the Globe and Mail at the time, and I, w- I had just come off to really what I felt were really good assignments, and yet I was overcome by this feeling of despair and this mm-hmm. sense of failure, mm-hmm. and it sort of dogged me everywhere. Everything I did, everything I tried to do. Felt like a bust. Mm. Felt like I failed even before I started.
0: Like you were, even though you were already successful in in many respects career wise, uh, it wasn't enough. Is that it?
1: It felt like I felt like a fraud. Right. I felt like I was faking it.
0: Imposter syndrome. Yeah,
1: exactly. Right. Intense <laughs> imposter syndrome, and that's something that really took over my life to the point where I felt I had no choice but to kill myself.
0: Mm. When did you start to actually realize that had had this thought always kind of been there in the in the background in the shadows or did it really surprise you at some point oh i want to kill myself like did it, did you see um, it coming
1: No i didn't see it coming but it was like it had so this feeling had so taken over my brain that it didn't feel like a disorder to me it right. felt like the truth
0: felt like it was normal yeah, yeah like of
1: course I want to kill myself because I just deserve to die yeah, who doesn't right? right?
0: yeah I felt like like when I was in that too I I uh, started to think of it as I developed this bad habit of thinking mm, about suicide mm-hmm. or trying to kill myself. it just, becomes reflexive. That's it. It, it, was, it became my coping mechanism for almost everything I felt like. It, it just I'm became sorry. so easy. Well, I mean, I've come to, to terms with it, to peace with it, I think. But it was all. I can relate to what you're saying because it seemed very strange to me that other people didn't think this way, that they couldn't see what I saw.
1: It felt very strange to me when someone told me that I had an illness. Right. I thought, no I don't, illnesses are treatable. Right. And what I have isn't treatable, this yeah. is just the way I am. Yeah. This is just, I feel like I need to die because I do need to die.
0: So when did that happen? When did is is that when you first realized that somebody told you, "Hey, maybe this isn't the way yeah, you're supposed to be." Yeah, I was
1: sitting. I was sitting in a psych ward, having tried to kill myself. That, and, and that's when you
0: found out, sitting in the. That's psych when ward. I found out I had an illness. Was oh, a, a
1: psychiatrist told me he was like, "I think you have major depressive disorder." And at first I was like, "No, I don't." Yeah. You're you're the crazy <laughs> you're one You're crazy. Here. <laughs> yeah. You know, it just didn't seem. It wasn't conceivable to yeah. me that this could yeah. be a, a mood disorder because that would mean that my convictions were wrong. Right. Right. That there was something flawed about how I was feeling about myself, right. and it took me a long time to come to terms with the fact that actually this was a mood disorder. It didn't have to be this way. Mm. This was something treatable. That was a revelation for me.
0: Yeah. Now, were you? So, were you um, always? chronically suicidal or did it flare up at stressful times or in certain times of year that kind of thing
1: It became chronic it yeah. wasn't constant but it was episodic so right. the 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 depression i think was almost constant with you know significant variations yeah. and when it got bad that's when the suicide and feelings of, of suicidality took over Sure but i mean in my you know in my teenagehood i think always I've had trouble with issues around like a sense of self and self esteem, mm-hmm. but I wouldn't have ca- I wouldn't call myself depressed as you know a child or as a teenager. Mm-hmm. This was something. This sense of hopelessness was something new that sprang up mm-hmm. in young adulthood.
0: Mm-hmm. Not to get too psychoanalyzed. I don't want to psychoanalyze you or anything, but not that I'm qualified to do that anyway. But what was what was home like? What was uh, would somebody who knew you know 8-year-old Anna have have thought oh yeah that tracks that that she was going to go that way.
1: I don't think so. My home life was really wonderful. I yeah. had in fact like after I was diagnosed with depression one of the one of the persistent emotions I felt was guilt because mm. Nothing has ever happened to me that's bad enough to right. warrant this kind of feeling. I, I have no re- reason
0: to be depressed. I have no kind of exactly yeah, yeah, exactly.
1: Yeah. I have no excuse. You know, which
0: is obviously the the different, or that's the whole point of having depression. Right. You don't you can, need a reason. You don't need a reason. Yeah. Just, it, it just it happens. happens. Yeah. Exactly. So this this sidelines you. You find out, hey, maybe something's wrong or not quite right while you're in a psych ward mm-hmm. uh, in Toronto in one of the yes. Toronto psych wards. Okay, so I, I worked as a clinician, uh, you know, long after I spent my own oh, no <laughs> went, way. went yeah went through the revolving door quite a few times. Where did um, you work? So in and around Toronto, and that was a really interesting experience for me. To many years later, after my achieved recovery. I don't even, I don't even.
1: Congratulations.
0: Well, (laughs) I don't even, I'm not even comfortable saying that because I still relapse, you know, occasionally and recovery is not a black thing. Remission. Remission. Yeah, exactly. But then to go back into some of these psych wards in and around Toronto and I grew up in a small town and then to see how things really weren't all that different all these years later, Mm that the the environment itself was still um, not always that conducive to recovery. So yeah. what was your experience like going into a psych ward for the first time, finding out that, oh, hey, I'm, I'm sick?
1: It's scary. Um, the scariest place, I think, is the mental health emergency unit. Right. Um, because that's where people are in r- acute crisis. Mm-hmm. And they're, and a lot of the times, you know, they're, they're sort of waiting for urgent urgently needed help. Yeah. Um, so is, but it's the, the priority is sort of containment. And control to a degree, so being there when you don't have any experience with that sort of thing, even when you do have experience. I was there more recently, um, Mm -hmm. and even though I knew what I was getting into, I was there voluntarily. I checked myself in, and even then, it's a scary place to be.
0: Sure, sometimes, Um, in in some ways, it's even scarier than I think because I don't know. I guess there's always, I always felt it because I've done it both ways. I've been involuntarily admitted and. Brought myself in, mm-hmm. and it was almost bringing myself in was almost scarier sometimes because it's like you go in because you're so desperate for help, uh, but then you know the help that you get isn't always—it's not going to do it for you. Put it that way, it's yeah. not going to cure you,
1: <laughs> or it's hard because you go in in part fueled by this perhaps irrational hope. Right. You're like someone is going to help me get me better. Whereas, yeah. like if someone is in, if you're being involuntarily hospitalized. You're sort of like, OK, this isn't up to me. Yeah. This is outside of my control. Someone else is taking over here. Yeah, Whereas yeah. going in of your own accord, it's like, OK, this is my decision. What am I doing?
0: Right. Yeah. So what brought what brought you to that place it, it, to, to bring yourself in, not knowing that you're sick, but having these suicidal thoughts? Um, what. What made you make the decision uh, to go into hospital, to bring yourself in?
1: I didn't decide to bring myself in until I I knew that I had depression. I knew I was sick. And that was actually this year. Um, It was several months after a suicide attempt. And um, I was just, I felt, I I could tell that my mood was getting worse. Hmm. And I was having trouble, you know, pulling myself out of these, you know, deep pits of despair. Yeah. And I was just like... And at the time, there was hope in an intervention. I was hoping that electroconvulsive therapy would be what it took to get me out. Right. Why, why
0: did you jump to that one?
1: It's... I mean, it, it has one of the higher uh, efficacy rates mm-hmm. of interventions, mm-hmm. and I hadn't tried it yet. Okay. So I was like, well, if I feel this bad, and if I truly want to get well, I should try everything out there. Right. So I decided to try it. But at the time... Um, in terms of what was available, I could only get it as an inpatient. Okay. So I had to check myself in. Right. So that decision was really tough because sure. I knew what psych wards were like. Yeah. And they're not pleasant places. Right. I mean, they can like there are degrees of, of unpleasantness, mm-hmm. and you can make them – less unpleasant, you can make them better places to be to, you know, exist and, and hopefully get better yeah. while, com- you're, th- while com- you're in there.
0: <laughs> Compliance helps with that, I find. If you're more compliant, it, oh it's more God. pleasant. Yeah, it's true. <laughs> then they're not as likely to strap you down. Not, oh to, not to make anybody afraid who's <laughs> <laughs> listening to this. But, you know, yeah. it's it's a reality of what the system is like. I think sometimes we see all these glossy pictures from the founda- hospital foundations and all that stuff of smiling people recovering from their, il- their mental illness. Yeah. Uh, and it's it's it can still be scary inside.
1: Yeah, definitely. I mean, I haven't been strapped down, but it's definitely not a smiley place. Oh, you
0: don't know what you're missing. No,
1: really? No. <laughs> I should go. I should go back.
0: Yeah, yeah, no. Well, I will say, however, you know, as as um, I've had both good and bad experiences yeah. in psych words, and I don't necessarily regret. Even sometimes, if the experience itself might have been traumatic, at least it kept me alive. Mm-hmm. Right. So I'm mm-hmm. still very much on that on that. Um, perspective that it's a part of the system that needs to exist for a very particular purpose. It uh,
1: definitely needs to exist. But I think we need to be judicious about how yes, we use it.
0: Yes. And I think we're in some ways becoming more liberal in how we use it. We're telling almost everybody, it seems, uh, to go to hospital that, that uh, a medication will solve all your problems. So, you know, sometimes you hear that. Uh, and it's just not the case. If for me, it, it happened to work reasonably well for me. Once I found, you know, once you figure it out a little bit of of the types of medications and therapies that work for you. But that's not the case for everybody. Actually, for some people, it makes them a lot worse.
1: One of the things I found in researching my book is that doctors in Ontario are much, and elsewhere in Canada, are much more readily putting people on forms. Yes. They're much more readily involuntarily hospitalizing people. Yeah,
0: and and, and seclusion and restraint is actually quite is, is going up used. as well. Yeah. Yeah. yeah,
1: and um on the one hand you can argue that they have good reason to do so, and certainly you know when when what you're doing is trying to prevent someone from killing themselves or from harming themselves, right. um the stakes are high. But I think we need to look really closely at whether there are alternatives that we're not using.
0: Yeah. And the World Health Organization and many others say that there are. You can usually um, uh, diffuse those situations well before they get to that point. Mm-hmm. You know, suicide prevention isn't done by lining up ambulances at the bottom of the bridge. Right. <laughs> well, there's all kinds of other ways. That it's there's not. A, yeah, really. But this is the approach that we take. Right? Yeah. And yeah. yes, there are there are. Um, Uh, stages or or, or there's levels of care that people need. Mm -hmm. But we prevent suicide by preventing all kinds of things well before that. I mean, that's that's the view that I take. Yeah. Um, But you've you've talked to how many people have you talked? Did you talk to in in writing this book?
1: Oh, my God. (laughs) More than 100 for sure. Yeah. Yeah, a lot of people, and and they were so generous with their time. Like right. I, I was very lucky to have people willing to talk to me, who would, I could call back and be like, "What about this thing?" Yeah,
0: yeah, yeah. So did you find uh, disparities, uh, even among expert, especially among experts, uh, in in terms of what they were telling you?
1: Uh, to a degree. Yeah. I mean, it's, it definitely depends on on what they were an expert in, but there were definitely. I mean, in you know, in things as basic as like, well, what do we know for sure about depression? Right. That's something that you know no one can agree on. Right. <laughs> or let alone things like, when should we hospitalize somebody? Right. Are the police the right people to call when you're in crisis? Mm-hmm. I mean, in, often, you know, in, in Canada and Toronto, they're the only people available. Right. But there are crisis lines for a reason. Sure. And, you know, there are like um, mental health crisis teams on, in police forces for a reason. Yeah. Um, so, but no, there was a lot of disparity in terms of what people... Were, were telling me what I was finding.
0: Yeah. And it seems, you know, I, I think um, in many ways we've kind of moved on from the chemical imbalance idea of, of uh, mental illness, more toward now a neuroplasticity genetics mm-hmm. kind of epigenetics uh, approach in that, you know, it might be part of your brain, but it, a lot of it depends on your surroundings as well. Yeah. Um,
1: yeah. I was and, hearing a lot about the neuroplasticity and epigenetics yeah, and yeah. like, this is, how, this is how your brain responding to its environment. Yeah. So like this is these are the steps we can take to address that.
0: Right. So in your case, then, I mean, it, it sounds like as a way to try to understand yourself, you're using these skills that you had developed as a reporter and, and uh, as, as a journalist. My, my reaction to that is, was that a way to distance yourself uh, from your own story or was it a way to try to intellectualize and understand it?
1: I mean, both. Right. Yeah. I, I'm not I wasn't used to writing about myself. This was right. something very new, mm-hmm. but I was used to doing journalism. Right. So this was a way for me to approach this in a manner in which I was familiar um, and it was a way for me to dig into it um, using you know, methods that I knew how to use. Yeah. So it kind of gave me a degree of distance right. and a degree of perspective as well.
0: Yeah, yeah. I, I've found that from a lot of people that I talk to, being able to separate yourself out from your own narrative, your own story, a little bit, even if it only is snapping into a different mindset, reporter mindset now, instead of suffering Anna mindset, right? <laughs> you know? Yeah, because suffering two... Anna mindset is the worst mindset. <laughs> hey, tell me, about it. <laughs> or suffering Mark mindset, I say. Yeah, um, but it. it that that shift, you know, and, and I do this all the time if I'm you know, doing this podcast or, or doing something on stage or, or whatever else it is, that if you can snap into a different way of being for a few minutes, uh, it's a nice vacation, first of all, mm-hmm. but it actually does. You you carry forward some of that information over to your other life as well, I think. You Absolutely.
1: Know? Um, one of the most valuable gifts I've gotten from my family is a, a very dark sense of humor. Yeah. The ability to sort of look at things from a funny perspective and being able to, to joke about things. Yeah even when you're in the ICU, recovering from a suicide attempt, yeah. um, is a really powerful thing and in that same vein I know things are bad in my brain when I can't do that when I'm so unwell that I can't find something funny about what I'm what you know the situation I'm in when the humor, I know things are pretty dire
0: I've I've had um, one comedian so far on this show but I mean it's it's fairly common knowledge I think that comedians are often people who suffer personally themselves and and that they're drawing on that as a source of of humor Mm -hmm. um I guess it's similar to a journalist, you know, d- digging into the research and and the interviews about it, uh, using humor to try to understand a situation makes it more palatable, I think.
1: Exactly, exactly. It creates that same sort of distance, I think. Yeah. That that you almost need as a as a coping mechanism to survive something.
0: It's exhausting being in the <laughs> dungeon no all the kidding. time, right? Yeah. Yeah. So so you go in uh, for this hospitalization, how many rounds of ECT did you end up doing when Twelve. you? Went- 12. And did you notice the, or, or uh, how close together were they?
1: Um, they? were. I was getting them two or three times a week.
0: Wow, okay. Yeah. And was it everything that you imagined it would be? <laughs> Tell me about that no, experience.
1: No. I don't want to dissuade people from sure. trying it because this, again, the success rates are high yes. and it's, you know, evidence-based. It's backed by evidence, but um, it, for in my case it was not. It did not lift my mood really. Right. And it like it messed up my memory a lot. I mean, it, which is, yeah. is you know advertised like people are told going in when you consent to it. It says I'm I'm consenting to this knowing that there will probably be you know memory loss involved. Right. Um, and actually,
0: I, I remember reading something at some point that. That might be part of the mechanism of action. Is that if you can't remember, (laughs) you remember why why you're you're so sad? Yeah, exactly. (laughs) That's so interesting. (laughs) No, I didn't realize that. Um,
1: In my case, most of what I—I mean—I forgot a lot. Sort of in the. in the immediate term, and then regained it. Mm. But things that sort of happened, like immediately surrounding the uh, seizures themselves, mm-hmm. which I mean, I was living in a psych ward, so it wasn't the best time in the world. Sure. It wasn't like something you want to remember. Um, but I forgot those, which kind of freaked me out later on.
0: Right now, writing the book, were you able to access some of those memories that had? Oh, been this was away? after. Oh, after. Okay. Yeah. Oh, yeah. it was after you wrote the book that you. Yeah. Did these... Oh, interesting. I know.
1: I was hoping that I would write the book and then and then just feel better and then I could, write, <laughs> like, sp- <laughs> isn't that how it works? So-
0: so it's funny you mention this because I, I keep inserting myself into the, into your story and I no. almost never do that with any other guest. But but I really um, relate to everything you're saying. And I found that writing the book, like I had access memories that I had long since repressed for good reason, yeah. it turned out. Oh, God. And I it, it was a struggle and it's still a struggle to go back and I've done it. I've done six drafts so far. But, you know, I find yours, what I've read of it so far, um, Soothing in many ways. Oh, good. Yeah, to be well, because I'm a I think I'm one of my preferred defense mechanisms is intellectualization. Yeah. If I can think something through, maybe I can figure it out. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And yeah. I get a lot from, of that from yours. Um, yeah,
1: that was definitely something I tried to do was sort of like sort things out for myself. And yeah. I mean, I guess to a degree, that's what cognitive behavioral therapy is, you know? Yeah. Like you kind of logic your way out of these toxic thoughts.
0: Right. Yeah, insofar as you're able to. Yes. I think what I work on now is, is, um, Sitting with uncomfortable feelings and letting them be uncomfortable—that yeah. oh, it's okay that that sucks. Let How's it. How's that going? Not very well. No. <laughs> <laughs> no, it's it's terrible, but it's supposed to be terrible. That's the thing. It's like yeah, there are difficult emotions, and yeah. you know, we hear a lot about this now because I think health, mental health, and wellness is a very popular discussion right now, right? Um, I
1: think it's popular on a surface level. I think we absolutely. rarely delve much deeper than that.
0: Almost never that I think it's it's very often about yoga and coloring, and, <laughs> you know, which is great. All those things are nice. But are people really getting into, you know, the title of your book? I want to die. <laughs> Please fix me. That that's still jarring for people. That yeah. It still makes people uncomfortable to talk about the difficult stuff. Yeah.
1: Yes. And that's why I wanted to be so blunt, because it is difficult. And in a way it should be, but it shouldn't be uncommon. It should be something that we readily talk about.
0: Yeah. Now, when you were writing the book and and now, you know, now that it's out and talking about it, um, have you encountered, um, you know, there's... We need to talk about suicide in particular, but we hear all the time, especially in, in journalism, that there's a right way and a wrong way. There's a productive and not so productive way about of talking about it. Did you have to grapple with this, both in writing the book and now in, in promoting it as well?
1: Yes, probably more in promoting it just yeah. because of the kinds of discussions that I've been having. Um, but I mean, there's definitely, I think unequivocally... Um, there are irresponsible ways to approach suicide. Mm-hmm. And that's horrible and shouldn't be done. But I think we can still be a lot more blunt and a lot more frank than yeah. we are.
0: Yeah. yeah, I think that, you know, helicopters uh, circling Robin Williams house the morning oh. after he, that he's found dead right this yeah. not so productive uh, of one of the news agencies who did that yeah uh, to do that however um, I think sometimes we get so hypersensitive of triggers and trigger warnings and that idea that we can't feel uncomfortable emotions well no actually we need to and, mm-hmm. and, uh, Speaking anecdotally, that's what got me to the edge was not wanting to deal with my uncomfortable emotions, right? (laughs) Using it as an escape in some ways. So Mm -hmm. I think you're right that we need to have more of this out there, assuming that people know what they're getting. Themselves into right? Yeah,
1: yeah. Right. And again, there are ways to approach it responsibly. We can talk about it like something that's treatable. Yes. And as something that you know there is help for. Of course, the coda to that is that you need to make the help available. Right. Right. It's no good to talk about dep- suicide and say like, "It's okay, you can get help." Yeah. And then when Drop someone eye, and help, walk away, exactly, yeah. exactly. Yeah yeah, yeah, yeah.
0: yeah. No, you're. Uh, that's right. And I think that people need to understand as as a, an extension of that that. Um, Help works. That if you, it's it's hard as hell to find the right help and, mm-hmm. and to get connected in a way that uh, is meaningful for you. But it, it can actually work uh, for most people.
1: Yes. Yeah. Prevention
0: works. Prevention absolutely works. Now, do you? This gets political too, because I, I have a friend who We did an episode with him a few weeks ago who believes in the right to kill yourself. Uh, that that should be something that people are allowed to do. Where do you stand on that?
1: I mean. I think it's interesting that right now in Canada and in some U.S. states, um, certain kinds of suffering give you the right to die, the right to a doctor-assisted death. Right. But if your suffering is in your brain, if you have mental illness, then your suffering is not seen as being serious enough to warrant mm. your assisted death. Mm-hmm. I think that's notable. Yeah. Um, and I think eventually the Canadian Supreme Court— I mean. I suspect the case there is going to be a case brought before the court of somebody with mental illness whose sure. mental illness precludes them from getting assisted death, and they're going to contest that in court, and the Supreme Court will have to decide.
0: And I believe they already are. Actually, I think one of those, at least one of those cases, have already been brought forward. I think my major hesitation with it, of course, is that if the thing that you're using to make decisions is the thing that might be impacted uh, by the illness, right? Your mind, yeah. your cognitive, uh, or your 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 decision-making ability, rather it always introduces the possibility that maybe this isn't what you really want, right?
1: Right, and somebody, uh, and I mean it's a tricky distinction to draw, but somebody made the point to me that if the mental illness is compromising mm-hmm. your cognitive ability and your ability to make this decision, that's when the decision becomes something that a doctor can't adhere to. Right. But if you have this illness and it's causing you suffering and you're making the rational decision you know, aside from the suffering, you say, like, I recognize that I have this illness. Mm-hmm. I recognize that, well, it may be treatable. It's not treatable for me. It can't be alleviated in, in my case. And knowing what it's causing me, I want to die. Right. The tricky part is a doctor would have to assess that and kind of tease right. that out. And that would be very difficult. But I think it's possible.
0: Yeah. Now, when you were suicidal, again, anecdotally, but did you believe that it was possible to get better? When you were killing yourself or trying to kill yourself.
1: When I've, been most, when I've been closest to suicide, I did not believe it was possible for me to get better. Right. When I'm farther away from it, I need to believe that recovery and remission is possible. Mm. Because if I don't, I can't keep going. Right. So it's difficult in my case um, because I don't, I don't think realistically – that I would be a candidate for assisted death, but that's because in order to wake up this morning, I had to tell myself, "I I can do better. I can mm. get better." Mm. And to in order to believe that, I think I need to believe that I'm not a candidate for assisted death.
0: Right. So then, does it? Do you think it opens up highway of sorts uh, for people to not have? Because I, I think that's brave. I think it's courageous. Uh, it ta- it's hard as hell some days, um, but it it. It's a practice, right? Recovery is a practice. It doesn't just happen mm-hmm. overnight. Mm-hmm. It's something that you learn how to do, I think. But if that highway existed, even if I was going through, as I uh, off, not often, but sometimes do, two, three weeks or months of a really dark period, if I could fast track my way through to skip, you know, skip getting to the other side of the tunnel, um, then I would miss the opportunity to actually get better, right? <sighs>
1: I don't think, and I mean, again, this is for crafters of the law sure. who are much smarter yeah. than me, but I don't think even in like the most liberalized circumstances, uh, you're going to get doctors who are just like, check, check, <laughs> yeah. check. True. check. True. Um, True. I think it's always going to be a really difficult and tricky yeah. decision to make. Yeah. And I, th- I think you, you need very experienced practitioners who can are confident in their ability to finesse these distinctions, but who also know the patient well enough to know, like, is this something Mark's come out of before? Yeah.
0: And, you know, I I guess I've got so many, I've got so many, um, I'm such a skeptic about so many areas of it, I guess, is that I've seen so many issues within the medical system, within the healthcare system. Often some of the, most of the stigma that I've experienced has been from healthcare providers uh, who I felt like didn't really get to know me uh, in a meaningful way. And I hear that all the time from people who have struggled and suffered. There's also the, the, for me, the human rights issue, I think, that in order for somebody to get to that point where they've been struggling that severely for so long, uh, they might have been bounced around in a system uh, that isn't helping them, Mm -hmm. or they might have never known for 20 years that they are able to access help and and able to get to that kind of help. So I think there are so many, there's also so many, um, You know, thinking of the assisted dying piece or not, there's so many problems with the system that people don't have the same kind of access to health care and recovery on the on the first on the front end of it, that by the time they get to that point it might seem hopeless and um, that they'll never recover. But that's because they've been screwed for so long by a system that's made it harder for them to co- recover. And
1: that's been an argument against assisted death all the way through. People have argued that in the cases of other illnesses as well, yeah. that you don't want death to be the easier option than caring for somebody. Right. So I think for sure before we provide death, we need to get much better at providing care.
0: To fix the system, yeah. 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 So when you did the... Um, Let's go back to when you're to, to the time period of the uh, book. So you're navigating the um, mental health system then, or when the first hospitalization was that twenty four, or was that when yeah, you yeah? The first,
1: first hospitalization okay. was at twenty four.
0: How many more came after that?
1: Um, as an inpatient, there was one in twenty fifteen, so about four years later, yeah. and then there was one. Well, there were a couple actually this year. Okay, okay. and then I, there were there were a couple occasions when I went in as an outpatient. Um, to get checked out, I swallowed sure. a pain thinner, and my, my my doctor was like, "You should call poison control." Yeah, and poison control was like, "Your lungs might have pneumonia." Yeah, but um, but it's but those were just those were one offs. Those yeah. were not, and those were not inpatient occasions.
0: Yeah, so that's a a fairly uh, long spacing four years between going in when you're twenty four and then several years four years later. Mm-hmm. Um, did you find at that point did you figure it out or did it just you went back to your version of coping whatever that was did you get help that I was the, getting did? help
1: one yeah. thing that was I was incredibly lucky about is that in my first um, inpatient stay when I was 24, um, I got hooked up with a psychiatrist who followed me after I was, uh, after I was discharged. Okay. And that was so lucky. I think that saved my life, honestly, yeah. Yeah. because this was somebody who followed me for years afterwards. Nice. Wow. Um, and having that, having that care, having that person I could trust mm-hmm. and could talk to, like, no matter how bad things got, yeah. it didn't prevent things from getting bad. No, sure. But I think it helped ensure that I stayed alive.
0: I think that's an important distinction, that it doesn't prevent things from getting bad, that, that recovery doesn't mean that you're never going to have any bad days or bad weeks or bad months. Mm-hmm. Um, but I think it, it helps to give you better skills uh, to deal with them, right? Yeah,
1: it gives you a lifeline. I mean, I wouldn't yeah. even consider myself recovered at, at that point. Like, those were tough years. Right. The past several years have been tough. Yeah. Um, but having a care practitioner to hang on to yeah. and to talk to was so vital.
0: Yeah, and knowing that you could, you know— I have this appointment next week. Maybe this this yeah. problem could wait until then. Right?
1: Exactly. Yeah. Exactly. This is somebody who will tell me that there's hope.
0: Yeah. Now, did you have a lot of people can't access that kind of resource? And you mentioned uh, that you were lucky to do so, either because they don't have benefits or they get put on a 18-month waiting list. Right?
1: It's astonishing. I had an appointment earlier this month uh, at a Toronto area hospital that had a year-long wait list for people referred there by their GPs. If this were any other condition, people would be outraged.
0: It's criminal. It's criminal to be, and especially when it's one of the many kinds of conditions. But especially with mental illnesses, and especially if you're actively suicidal, uh, it's only going to get worse <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> unless you get the help you need. Yeah, yeah. Like, it's not the type of thing that tends to fix itself.
1: Exactly. Right? Exactly.
0: So in, your, in writing the book, you must have come across this over and over again, the inconsistencies in the system, the, the problems that people are encountering.
1: Yeah. And it's so frustrating, especially like in Canada, we like to think of ourselves as a country with universal health care. Mm. We pride ourselves on it. But the reality is, if you don't have benefits, you don't get pharmacotherapy and you don't get psychological help. Mm-hmm. So really the primary ways that we treat mental illness aren't available to you unless you're privileged. Right. And that's astonishing.
0: And we wonder why there's an, a year-long, and that's that's average, uh, a year-long wait list to see a psychiatrist when we've got all these other healthcare providers waiting on the sidelines that people can't access because they can't afford them or they don't know about them or they don't realize the evidence. You know, psychotherapy is just as effective as medication. Mm-hmm. And ideally, you do both together. Exactly. Right? So, so, so was your um, method of treatment primarily with a psychiatrist and with medication ECT?
1: It was both. It was... Both. Okay. Um, it was uh, it was mo- mostly pharmacotherapy, but also psychotherapy, also CBT. Okay. Um, so I was getting evidence-based care. Yeah. It was just tough to find a treatment mechanism that was a, that was working for right. me. Right. It's like and that was...
0: darts at a dartboard. Right. Yeah. Yeah. Now there are there's interesting um, research just starting to come out. I mean, now that we've been paying so much attention to mental health, I think the research world is. It's always ten years behind, at least. But we're starting to to find ways to, um, you know, identify the right medication or potentially the right medication for somebody uh, before you even prescribe them. Because the old way, the way that I went through, is that you just prescribe a bunch of stuff and see what sticks.
1: Yeah, right? yeah, just trial and error, exactly. and error. And error.
0: So how many uh, did you find the the right medication fairly quickly, or did it take a while? No, we no. haven't yet. Oh, you still haven't. Okay. Yeah. Yeah.
1: Um, it's been god maybe 16 17 different drugs wow. in a bunch of different combinations
0: yeah yeah what are you, what's your primary concern or what's the the primary issue that, that causes you the most difficulty
1: a a, a lack of hope yeah. i think and again, again this feeling of failure keeps coming up hmm. This sense that i that my life is not worth living right and that i've failed and that i will continue to fail and that there's no point in trying anymore so, like, these really—and and it keeps recurring, and I yeah. sort of—even when I notice, like, oh, I've had this thought before, right. um, it still doesn't take away from its potency.
0: Yeah. Do you seek out evidence to the contrary in the way that you would as a as a journalist, find the other sides of the argument?
1: I try, but probably not as hard as I should right. and not as effectively as I could.
0: It's one of the things I noticed—and I still do it all the time, actually, I do it more than I don't— um, when people compliment me for something or tell me that the work is meaningful, for example, and yeah. your book, I, I am confident, uh, is going to help a lot of people, um, you don't hear it. <laughs> or, you <minimize> it. <laughs> or, or you minimize it. Or you minimize it. I was
1: actually talking recently to my psychiatrist that I have a habit to both, on the one hand, um, need external validation because I can't, of my own accord, make myself feel good. Right. But on the other hand, I have a tendency to either minimize or discount external feedback. Yeah. So on the one hand, I need people to tell me or I need something outside of myself to tell me I'm okay, I'm not horrible. Right. On the other hand, if people tell me I'm not horrible, I'll say they must be wrong.
0: Right. Yeah, yeah I, it's it's creepy that I do the exact same thing. It's like you crave it, you need it, but then yeah, but you then get you, it, it's you like reject oh, yeah, don't worry about it. And then, yeah. You know, yeah, yeah. yeah,
1: it's so self-destructive.
0: Have you explored some of the, the, the trendier uh, therapies and interventions that are coming out now around gratitude and mindfulness and uh, you know that kind of practice?
1: Um, my psychiatrist did get me to try mindfulness. Mm-hmm. I did like, they had a couple week. Uh, I can't remember how many weeks it was, um, they had a workshop. It's, I mean, it's a little bit hokey, but it right. is effective. It can be. Yeah. yeah. Like, there is evidence for it. Um, if you're able to sort of, again, sort of identify thoughts that you're having, yeah. tell yourself, like, okay, this is a thought. Right. It's not necessarily true, but we're going to look at it and kind of. Uh, it's, it's sort of similar to CBT in that you're identifying thoughts and thinking about them as thoughts without sort of giving them power over you. Yeah. So that, in that sense, it was helpful.
0: I find, yeah, getting, that's almost what's, what's worse, I think, is not necessarily the negative thought or the troubling thought. Everybody has weird, you know, dark thoughts. I think everybody does anyway. And if they, if they say they don't, they're a liar. (laughs) (laughs) But but it's the inability to let it go and to Mm -hmm. let it float away, right? You get wrapped up in the thought and you cling to that thought for whatever reason, or you fight the thought Mm -hmm. and that just makes it more powerful. Right?
1: yeah so that mindfulness was good in that sense it was yeah. good at saying like oh there's a thought beat okay yeah moving on
0: there's a um, something called mindfulness based cognitive therapy yes. that kind of melds the two together yeah um, I haven't done it yet myself but it uh, I keep telling myself that I will <laughs> at some point <laughs> it's
1: worth trying uh,
0: have you done yeah a little bit it? yeah okay so and it sounds very much like that's that's the idea that you're talking about yeah uh, and I said this about, um, this idea that I've already wanted to die for like half my life, so mm. I might as well. No, I mean it's not. That's not a sad story. I don't mind. <laughs> <But> <laughs> <laughs> okay. I'm I'm good with it. No, uh, I should I shouldn't. I guess that's my coping mechanism, right? Yeah. Is, is is that's how I minimize it? But um, this idea that um, it's not a. I guess it's not a big deal to go out and try all these different things, however weird they might seem, however you know hokey or or strange, because you know there's always death, so huh? I might as well go try all these other things instead. Yeah, I, mean, I need
1: to be able to tell myself that I'm trying, and that yeah. I'm trying everything I can, we, because otherwise, what am I doing?
0: Well, exactly. What what, what alternative is there uh, except to try as much as we possibly can? And I think at some point, I, I've kind of learned to enjoy the. Um, adventure of it I guess the anticipation of will this work or will this totally mess me up (laughs) 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 because I I should also note I've also found lots of things that don't work yeah (laughs) but that's valuable information too I think
1: better to know than not to
0: talk to me about when so the book is is just out um who were you most afraid of reading this book
1: Probably people I had interviewed. I was mm. afraid of them reading it and being like, "Well, that's not that's a mischaracterization of what I said." Which <laughs> that's I think what you do I for think a every living, I know I know and I'm I'm never going to stop being afraid of that as right. a reporter. Um, you're always afraid of I think of the people you talk to because they're the people like you spend your time you know coaxing them out. Right. They spend time talking to you. You're so afraid of the thing that the thing they they put together. Or I was afraid of people who like have had similar experiences reading it and saying. Well, that's not true to my life. That's right. not how I experienced it at all. But it's not, it their, it's not a oh. memoir of their life. No, exactly. <laughs> um, so I had these really irrational fears sure. that I was able to sort of, I was kind of able to coax myself out of. Yeah. But um, they still pop up.
0: Well, uh, so, you know, I, I, and I want to I want to name that, that it sounds like um, you did so much good work uh, in this story, in the interviews, uh, that this is going to help a lot of people I've mentioned. But well, it will. I know that. Like I've I've been doing the mental health advocacy for for a while now, and I think this is exactly the type of uh, information that's needed. It's not. It's there's so much in this in this mental health um, fad in some ways that we're in that everybody wants to talk about mental health now, and that never used to be that way. And I remember a time when it wasn't, and I'm not that old, (laughs) Um, but. Uh, it's been kind of a scattershot. So there's mm-hmm. a bunch of information out there in the ether about all kinds of different mental health related topics. But what I like about what you've done, or at least as far into it as I've gotten, is to try to bring that together in a coherent way uh, that that helps people to understand. So don't dismiss it, but thank you. <laughs> thank you for doing <laughs> thank you. that. Thank you. you know? Now, my my worry um, is partly for you, that it sounds like that you're going through uh, a difficult time presently, uh, that, um, you know, you've done such a momentously good thing, and I don't think you fully yet appreciate how, how significant it really is. So I want you to know how, how significant it is.
1: Thank you so much. That means a lot. I hope um, so. It's, I'm trying to—it's hard because I don't want to um, overstate the potential of this book, but I really would like to believe that it can have, make a difference and that it can help people find a sense of self and find a sense of hope that they weren't able to before in terms of the personal stuff I mean I keep thinking I'm over it I keep thinking like you know what oh, okay I've, I talk about this now as part of like this book that I've written I'm you know I'm done with messing with my life and yeah. then and then all of a sudden I wake up one day and I'm like it's like a truck has hit me yeah I I in order to keep going I need to believe that I can minimize that right. that I can make that if not disappear at least. Lose some of its power. Yeah, um, I don't know yet how I'll do that.
0: You know, I don't either. <laughs> <laughs> but I think I've not every day is you know I want to kill myself terrible, right? Oh, good. Uh, and well, and and I think that getting comfortable with the fact that not every day is going to be great, and some days are still going to be you got to drag yourself out of bed. That's okay, but because uh, there's other days that are going to be really beautiful and really great. You know, those are the days that I live for. Mm-hmm. Um. And I, I think part of it is coming to peace. Uh, I've heard this from others too, coming to peace in myself that that's just kind of how my mind works. And it's, it's also the birthplace of a lot of really incredible creativity and drive and um, being able to share stories like you have uh, and to bring people together like you have. You wouldn't have done this, I don't think, had you not had your personal experience, right? I probably wouldn't have. Yeah. Did anything change for you in writing the book, either in terms of your understanding of yourself or mental health and mental illness in general?
1: A little bit of both I understood better uh, how this illness treated me and how that differs from how it treats other people mm. um, just how different people experience the disease but also again how the very ways that we I you know define and identify depression mm-hmm. is so um, subjective and so like uh, you know, specific to, you know, who's writing the definitions. So that sort of changed the way I viewed it Mm -hmm. and changed the way I perceived our definitions around mental illness. But it also changed the way I saw mental suffering in general, because I saw sort of how society has minimized its impact on sufferers while maximizing its fear of people suffering from it Mm -hmm. and sort of the consequences of that
0: yeah I've seen it you know when you talk about or or in 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 uh, popular narratives now talk about the severity of of mental illness, and it can be extremely severe and extremely debilitating uh, but it's often not actually for the majority of people, it's not the the farthest end of the spectrum. But when we focus a lot on that that that's scary <laughs> and I think in some ways it embeds stigma further.
1: I think it should be possible for us to look at the severity of mental illness without stigmatizing or isolating the people suffering from that. People in that situation need care. They don't need further stigmatization. Absolutely. Um, I also think it's possible for depression to be debilitating, or for any mental illness, to be debilitating without its sufferers being a danger to other people. Right. And I think that's one of our big
0: mistakes. Well, and sometimes it's so silently debilitating that you could be functionally uh, disabled by your mental illness and nobody would ever notice because mm-hmm. <laughs> right? yeah. we, be- we become such good actors, I guess, yes. at, at hiding our, our illness.
1: Yeah. Yeah. And that, that that should be what scares us. Yeah. That there are people among us that who's suffering we're not aware of right. and who are leaving to suffer in silence on their own.
0: As you were working, uh, did this cause, uh, did, did people in your workplace notice when you were not having good days, weeks, months, whatever it was?
1: Not in my workplace, no. Yeah. I had close friends who knew, but even they, like, there were very few people I confided in when I was feeling bad. Yeah. And there are more of them now. There are more people now who will ask me how I'm doing and they mean it. They genuinely want to know. But so often I assume that people really didn't want to know right. the people that I that I shouldn't mention it because it would scare people away.
0: Yeah. Yeah. The, the hey, how are you? And then by the time you answer, they're already half of them. All. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> right. yeah. Or you just say fine. Yeah.
1: You know. So, I mean, I still don't know like how many people I could probably count on, I guess, maybe one and a half hands. Um, The number of people I would honestly tell when I was having a bad day. Right. Which what? is better than it used to be.
0: Sure. And why do you think that is? Is there still that fear?
1: I think so. There's also the fear of like you don't want to hurt people. You right. know, you're worried that by telling someone how awful you're doing, you'll somehow burden them. Right. And there's this fear of being a, being a burden. Yeah. Yeah. Especially um, if you already
0: feel like a burden anyway. Exactly. Right? Exactly.
1: Yeah. Um, so that's very real. And that's something I wrestle with.
0: Yeah, in your uh, among your family, and you mentioned you have a few close friends. Did you find support, or did people say the right things? I guess.
1: Yeah, they've been. um, My family's been incredibly supportive, and they've been put through the ringer on this. Mm. Um, You know, obviously, no one should have to go through this, but I feel really bad that. And again, every clinician will tell you that you shouldn't feel guilty about. You know, the self harm that you do and its effects on other people because right. that's not, you're not doing it to hurt people. It's no. not, you know. Um, but it's hard not to feel guilty hmm. about what I've caused my family to feel. Hmm.
0: Have they given you evidence to the contrary that no, we love you? Yes. <laughs> <laughs> they've, been, they've been so loving and they've been
1: so supportive unconditionally. Yeah. Yeah. And they've been there in hospital with me. They've yeah. been with me when I've been having bad days outside of hospital. Yeah. Um, I have friends who just come to, like, sit with me and just sort of be um, or who will just talk to me when I need someone to talk to. Yeah. And that, too, has been so, so important in keeping me going. Yeah,
0: that's, that's, in, that's incredible. So what, what have they done or what are some of the things that they've said that have been particularly helpful for you? And is there anything that you've experienced that maybe wasn't so helpful in terms of how people talk to you?
1: I remember one friend saying he was happy I was alive, and that sounds Mm. like the simplest thing in the world, but it means so much because especially when you're feeling unsure how you feel about being alive, and this is someone who's telling you like I love you Mm. and I'm glad you're alive, that was so valuable. Mm. That Um, actually just
0: made me a little bit emotional too. (laughs) (laughs) Sorry. Because no, no, don't apologize. Stop. Um, uh, There's nothing to apologize for because I think that's actually really beautiful. Somebody validating your life.
1: It really was. It was wonderful. Um, in terms of less helpful, I remember <laughs> I was on the phone to my grandfather uh, after my first attempt. Uh, he was in Calgary and he said, no more stupid tricks. <laughs> and I was like, okay. As though you're a magician? <laughs> a bad magician <laughs> right? at that? What
0: does that even mean? I'm a mean? terrible magician.
1: <laughs> Worst magician ever. Um, so that again, that just kind of, it sort of treats the suicide yeah. attempt as like, yeah, some tomfoolery. Right. Um, I also had someone, and I think someone made me promise uh, not to try again. Mm. Which, when I promised, was a lie, mm. and but also made me feel terrible because it made me feel like, in order, I had I had to lie to somebody that I loved, right? In order to you know communicate my love. Yeah. Um, so that felt really uncomfortable. Yeah. And it was—it sort of ties back to one of the things that clinicians I, I spoke with for the book kept telling me, which is that um, not like telling people not to kill themselves isn't always the most constructive thing to do. Well, right. because oh,
0: they're not going to say, oh, OK. Oh,
1: yeah. That's all <laughs> I needed.
0: Yeah.
1: Right. <laughs> I wish you had told me that like three <laughs> days ago. right? No. <laughs> exactly. Exactly. So like telling someone that you're glad they're alive or that you love them, I think, is sort of or that the world is better mm-hmm. with them in it. I think, are all really powerful ways of dissuading but actually telling someone don't do that when they really want this and even as pathological as that desire is, yeah. um, can be really counterproductive.
0: Well, I think it's helpful to understand the reasons or better understand the reasons why somebody wants to die in the first place. Mm-hmm. You know, are they trying to escape and suffer really inescapable pain? Yeah. Uh, or are they tired? You know, there's all kinds of reasons why people get to that place and just ignoring them doesn't make those reasons go away.
1: Exactly. Right? Exactly. And yet that's for so long. That's how we treated suicide prevention. Yeah. was sort of trying to ignore, trying to bury the reasons driving the suicidality.
0: Yeah. So what what's next for you? What are you looking forward to? I mean, you've I, this book is probably going to keep you busy, at least in the short term. Yeah. Um, so what's next?
1: Um, so I'm going back to my work at Reuters, which is really exciting. Yeah. Uh, it's a great newsroom, really wonderful people. Um, and then I'll be a news reporter. And I'm hoping uh, to write another book. I can't say what about yet.
0: But because you don't know or you're not allowed? <laughs>
1: Mostly because I don't know. Yeah. <laughs> I know what I'm doing. You'll um, figure it out. I'm hopefully sure. I will figure out what I'm doing and yeah. then it will be great. Yeah. So, so yeah, the future is kind of unwritten so far.
0: As it often is, I think. and As, yeah. as it should be. That, that's the exciting part of it. Yeah. Well, Anna, thank you so much for coming in and talking to me. I'm so glad that you wrote this book. I'm so glad that you're going to receive and already have received uh, incredible praise for it. Uh, and I'm so glad that you're alive.
1: Thank you so much. That's all really wonderful to hear. Thank you.
0: All right, that's it. That was my conversation with author, Reuters reporter Anna Mailer uh, the her memoir. Hello, I want to die. Please fix me. Uh, available through Penguin everywhere now. Go out and buy it, please. It's it's quite a read. You heard me mention a number of times about the uh, the number of people that she talked to uh, to try to understand her story. The list of references in the back. It's obvious a, a really tenacious, uh, successful journalist uh, has written this book, and and the way that she brings information together. So uh, go pick up that book. You won't regret it. Follow Anna as well on uh, Twitter, Facebook, wherever else you can find her uh, and look forward to her next book, whatever she decides that's going to be. I know I'm going to buy it as well. Uh, I want to thank you for listening. I want to uh, ask you to go over to uh, Apple Podcasts or wherever you get this podcast and subscribe to So-Called Normal. Uh, give us your subscription. Give us a rating at the bottom there. That uh, little Those little stars mean a lot. Write a review if you like this interview. Share it with your friends. I'm on uh, Twitter, Facebook, Instagram, everywhere else, at Mark Hennick, That's at M-A-R-K-H-E-N-I-C-K. Follow me everywhere uh, for more information, or you can go to markhennick.com as well, for more information about the podcast and about my work, um, what else do we need to do here? I want to thank all the people involved in this show, of course, uh, you know, our wonderful uh, editor, Dave Trafford, uh, the people here at E1, Adrian, Kimberly, uh, you know, for making this this show possible. It's really these are the kinds of conversations like I had with Anna today uh, that really make it all worthwhile. So tune in next week. We're here every Monday uh, and we got some lots more uh, great guests coming for you. OK, that's it. I'm Mark Henick. Take care. Bye-bye.